This episode is brought to you by Manscaped. Santa Baby, the season for a fresh cut is finally here with Manscaped. The leaders in below-the-waist grooming have just launched their fifth-generation performance package to help you avoid another silent night in the bedroom this year. Take care of your special snowflake with the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra and watch your South Pole shine like never before. And this holiday season, you can get the best stocking stuffer of all by going to manscaped.com and using the promo code HUDDYHISTORIAN for 20% off plus free shipping. Mrs. Claus will thank you. And as a longtime Manscaped customer, I can attest I love the reliability and clean finish I always get with the Beard Hedger when my beard needs a trim. And as a hairy guy, I can tell you that is indeed quite often. But not to be outdone, I also love the Weed Whacker 2.0 to trim the nose and ear hair so that my wife doesn't complain about me looking like a scraggly mess. Manscaped is a one-stop shop for all of your holiday needs. They have the perfect gift in the Performance Package 5.0 Ultra, which includes loads of perfect stocking stuffers. I mean, what could be better than giving the gift of good hygiene and a few laughs this year? Starting with the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra, this is the crown jewel of the holidays and dare I say the best ball trimmer of all time? The Electric Razor's advanced skin-safe technology is a lifesaver and known for reducing nicks and cuts on his Santa sack. But of course, the fun doesn't stop there. Anybody in the family have too much scruff? Look no further than Manscaped Beard Hedger Pro Kit and Handyman Electric Face Shavers for all of his facial hair needs. But what if Dad has nasty nose hairs? Well, save the day with the Weed Whacker 2.0 Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer. Is there boxer game week? Take care of the chestnuts with Manscaped's Boxers 2.0, featuring their signature jewel pouch to keep you calm, cool, and collected. And lastly, have their nails seen better days? Manscaped has you covered there too with their new Shears 3.0 Nail Grooming Kit. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code HUDDYHISTORIAN at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code HUDDYHISTORIAN, H-U-D-D-Y-H-I-S-T-O-R-I-A-N. Say ho, ho, ho to a well-groomed mistletoe with Manscaped. Episode 37, Yena and Auerstedt. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope you all enjoyed our first installment of our series within a series about the marshals of the First French Empire. I'm hoping that between now and, well, Waterloo, I can add an additional marshal in between each episode so that by the time we bid adieu to Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, we have a better understanding of the men who also were major contributors to not only his superhuman rise, but also his meteoric downfall. But before we begin, as always, I want to thank you all again, as I appreciate the support you all have given me throughout this series, and for the following that this podcast has generated over the past year and a half. Never in a million years would I have thought that in such a short amount of time that this humble little project of mine would have gotten enough traction to warrant a sponsor. But thanks to you all, it has and I'm hoping that we can continue to keep making these episodes for the foreseeable future. And again, I 
cannot thank all of my listeners enough for their support, and I am eternally grateful to all of you. And so, during this holiday season, I just wanted to say that, and I cannot wait to see where the rest of this journey takes us. But with that, on with the show. We left off last episode with the execution of German nationalist Johann Palm at the orders of Napoleon, who, if we remember, was infuriated at the anti-French publications that were coming out of Palm's bookshop and then being distributed around neutral Nuremberg. Now this, in addition to Napoleon's growing influence in the German states with his formation of the Confederation of the Rhine, as well as his backdoor dealing of Hanover back to Britain without Prussia's consent as an overture for peace, and the French occupation of the territory as a whole to begin with, began the formation of Prussia's war council, and their drums of war began beating even louder. Now, Palm's hastily assembled uh, trial infuriated the local German population as well as the Prussians, who were already growing anxious of Napoleon's influence over the states that they had historical sway over. Using the political execution, I mean, let's call it what it was, as a further causus belly, Prussian King Frederick William III, with further pressing by his court and especially his wife, Queen Louise, decided for war and gave Napoleon an ultimatum that should he not withdraw all of his troops west of the Rhine by the 8th of October, he would face the full wrath of the Prussian army. Now, Queen Louise was especially influential in the decision, and she is often regarded as Frederick William's right-hand woman for her heavy pressure on the king to mobilize. Detesting Napoleon personally, she once declared that, quote, Napoleon is a monster who has emerged from the mire, and he needed to be dealt with as such. Not wanting to wait for that, Napoleon decided to make the first move. By September of 1806, less than two months after Massena's Italian campaign had technically ended the War of the Third Coalition, the War of the Fourth Coalition was mere weeks away. Now this gets us caught up to where we left off from that episode, but Prussia was faced with a major dilemma right off the bat, and it wasn't Napoleon readying his army for war, which we'll get to in a second. You see, in a perfect encapsulation of the tepidness of Frederick William, he was so easily influenced by his wife and the Berlin War Council that he never consulted on the decision to go to war with his main coalition allies, Britain and Russia, and to a lesser extent Sweden, before making the decision. Now this is especially ironic because it was Prussia who decided against joining the third coalition allies at the last minute the previous fall, something which likely would have prevented Napoleon from forcing Prussia's hand now, but that's neither here nor there. Regardless, his decision to go to war independently meant that he would face a formidable, battle-hardened French Grand Armée alone without the support of Russia, who were still looking their wounds from Austerlitz and would not likely be ready for full mobilization until the late fall at the earliest. This was to say nothing of the fact that Austria would not be joining him this time after the signing of Pressburg, and, well, they had been beaten enough by Napoleon to have finally learned their lesson, at least for now. Lastly, there was the issue of Britain. Now, we're going to get to Britain more next week, because it will be after Jena and Auerstedt in which the continental system begins in earnest. But, save for some economic warfare on the high seas, there were no British soldiers being committed to any fight on the continent against Napoleon. This was going to be Prussia's fight and Prussia's fight alone. Frederick William was, as we mentioned, aware of this. But was he prepared for this? Well, spoiler alert, no. Not at all. Now, back in France... Once Napoleon had received word of Frederick William's ultimatum, he weighed his options. Though, I have to think he let out a slight chuckle when he heard that the Prussians had chosen war without an ally at the ready against his Grand Armée, 
a large portion of which were still in Germany, and they would have had additional support from members of the Confederation of the Rhine. In any event, though, he could have prepared his men for a potential invasion by Prussia into the Confederation of Rhine and set up a defensive war, but this likely would have given time for Russia to come to her aid, and so his other option would be to launch an attack of his own, taking the fighting to Berlin's doorstep before Russia could even march through Poland. Believing that Russia was indeed mobilizing, Napoleon chose option two, and as the calendar turned to September, he ordered Marshals Soult, Ney, and Ajaroux to mobilize their corps as quickly as possible and march them to the Rhine frontier. His initial plan was to march his army past Kronach in Bavaria in a week, and, if they were able to do so, invade Prussia, attack, and be in Berlin in a week and a half, forcing Prussia out of the war before Russia even had a chance to get their wagon train together. It was a bold plan, but it was one that Napoleon was certain would work. Napoleon began concentrating his forces in Bavaria and moving them to the border of the Electorate of Saxony, the sole ally, if we'll call him that, that Prussia would have in the initial fighting during the War of the Fourth Coalition. He sent his scouts through the local towns, villages, and hamlets to get a concrete lay of the land. He wanted to know every piece of information that he could get to be used either for or against Prussia, including strategic locations of weapon stockpiles, food, and supplies. He sent dummy plants throughout the countryside as well, sowing additional seeds of disinformation to assure that his true intentions were kept secret, and even ordered up the mobilization of men at Utrecht as a pretext for a pitched battle with the British. It was all a ruse, of course, but that was the point. It was always the point. Napoleon wanted to be two steps ahead of you while you were two steps behind. And once that little seed of doubt was planted, he was going to unleash hell. Napoleon left France on September 25th and arrived at Mainz four days later. It would be the last time he set foot in France for almost a year. Now, Prussia's mobilization for war was, to put it mildly, a shit show. For some context, Prussia's army prior to the War of the Fourth Coalition was as much revered as it was feared, a reputation it had earned dating back to over 50 years during the reign of Frederick the Great. But the present reality was far less rosy. Firstly, the Prussians had not launched a full-scale campaign since 1795, and they had never directly engaged Napoleon, who was at his military peak in a pitched battle. Many of her leading generals were old and long past their prime, and much of the glory that they had earned came fighting with battle tactics that Napoleon had rendered obsolete over the previous decade. There was also a deep-seated mistrust amongst the Prussian high command, with generals competing with one another over their plans, goals, and expectations for the campaign. As one army officer put it, quote, behind the facade was all mildewed. Now, as a result, their initial movements to meet Napoleon confounded the emperor, and even despite his intelligence agents providing as much detail as they could on the Prussian maneuvering, none of them really made sense to Napoleon. As a result, he ordered the Grande Armée to march in a massive bataillon carré, or battalion square, in three large columns through the Franconian forests in southern Thuringia on the Saxony border. Now, because the woods were thick and difficult to navigate through, the Carré system allowed each unit to be within supporting distance of one another, allowing them to meet any enemy deployment with assistance from a nearby column. Essentially, Napoleon wanted to have multiple ways of meeting the enemy, since he was unsure of where they actually were. If one unit encountered the Prussians, the others could move in to assist without substantial delay. But the Prussians, their movements astonished Napoleon, who was dumbfounded by their brazen lack of defending strategic positions. 
When Marshal Davout, for example, took Kronik without so much as a gunshot, Napoleon couldn't believe the Prussians didn't make much of an effort to defend the position. As a result, he decided to completely change tact and announced a new strategy. He would concentrate his forces to his right with the hope of being able to unite over 200,000 men in the field of battle, wiping out the Prussians and taking their capital city. Napoleon had assumed that they would concentrate near Erfurt and Weimar in Thuringia, and thus he wanted to march his men up the Saal River Valley towards Leipzig, before turning back up westward to envelop the Prussian left flank, cutting them off from Berlin. His main strategy was to force the main Prussian army to a pitched battle at Gera, which was just south of Leipzig, before making the turn westward. The battle plan was straightforward, but it needed to cover enormous distances in short intervals of time, and many of his corps marched upwards of 30 miles in a single day to move into positions through rugged terrain, complete with artillery, baggage trains, and horses. Now, by October 5th, the Prussian high command was still undecided on a single battle plan, but once they received word of Napoleon's movements through Saxony, they would place General of Infantry Frederick Louis, Prince of Hohenlohe at Rundelstadt on the left bank of the Saal River, General Ernst von Ruschel at Gotha to the northwest, and General Charles William Ferdinand, Duke of Brunswick's main force, at Erfurt. Now, because the Prussians were concentrating at Erfurt, which was just southwest of Leipzig, Napoleon's left flank would be vulnerable to a direct Prussian assault, which was exactly the intention Brunswick had. Unfortunately for Brunswick, who had just turned 70, Napoleon noticed this, and he moved his army further north at lightning speed. Brunswick was astonished by the pace at which Napoleon, 34 years his junior, moved his army, and as a result, he ordered a quick redeployment of his troops. From here, the first engagements of the Jena campaign would commence. Now, the main French force was organized as such. Marshal Murat led six light cavalry regiments, while Marshal Bernadotte led his first corps in the lead. The left flank was commanded by Marshals Lon and Ajaro, while the right was led by Marshals Soult and Ney. Finally, the Imperial Guard was concentrated in the center, with Marshal Davou coming up from Kronach in reserve, along with the main cavalry force. But don't let Davou being in the rear fool you. He is going to be one of the stars who will shine the brightest in this episode, I assure you. But anyway, after a small skirmish between the forces at Saalburg along the banks of the Saal River, the first major engagement came at the Battle of Schleis on October 9th. Now Schleis lay northeast of Saalburg, further inland from the right bank of the Saal. Bernadotte's leading first corps came into contact with Prussian General Bogoslav von Tautenzein's divisions, consisting of around 6,000 Prussians and 3,000 Saxons in the nearby Auschwitz woods. Now Bernadotte ordered the clearing of the force in order for Marshal Drouet's divisions to be able to march onto Schleis itself. Now this was successful, but the French were unable to advance past the forest as they were checked by a small Prussian force. By the early afternoon, the French had regained their composure and were encroaching on Schleis. With this all but an inevitability, Tautenzein decided to abandon the town, and a final assault by Murat's rearguard, despite stiff Prussian resistance, finally pushed them out of the area. The Prussians suffered over 500 casualties, but critically, 12 officers died in the fighting. The French, meanwhile, suffered only a few deaths, though the exact numbers are not known. Now, while the Battle of Schleis was a relatively mild engagement in the grand scheme of the Prussian campaign, it did send alarm bells through the Prussian high command. General Hohenlohe, after hearing of the defeat, ordered the troops on his left to move towards Rudolstadt and Jena before joining with Tautenzein. Critically, though, Brunswick overrode him, and with Hohenlohe's original orders suspended, 
He sent an obscure letter to Prince Louis Ferdinand, who was King Frederick William's cousin, by the way, and commanded Hohenlohe's advance guard. Now, Ferdinand misinterpreted the letter as an order to defend the town of Saalfeld on the left bank of the Saal. And the next day, he would encounter not only Marshal Jean Lon and his 5th Corps waiting for him, but also his fate. Now, that night, Prince Ferdinand moved his troops across the Saal, and by the morning of October 10th, they were ready for battle. Ferdinand's forces consisted of his advance guard, numbering around 8,500 men, most of whom he arranged in a straight line in front of Saalfeld. Now, Lon's 5th Corps, composed of some 12 to 13,000 men, had orders to reach Saalfeld and take the town by the 11th, but when they got word of the Prussian movements, Lon marched his 5th Corps at lightning speed to meet them. The Battle of Saalfeld began in earnest at around 10 a.m. when the French Light Cavalry Brigade and Advance Guard met the Prussian Saxon army near Garnsdorf, south of Saalfeld, eventually pushing them out and occupying that town. Now, Prince Ferdinand then ordered his main army to attack and meet the French advance, but Lon, noticing that the Austrian right flank was unguarded, ordered Marshal Louis-Gabriel Suchet's division to advance through the woods to outflank them, likely being able to do so under light fire and hardly being noticed. Lon then ordered skirmishers to distract the main Prussian force so as to allow Suchet time to gather his division and move them through the thick woods before ordering the main assault. Now the Prussians were in a precarious position at this point because the French were beginning to stabilize and even push the Prussians back. Prince Ferdinand was ordered by Hohenlohe to retreat back to Rudolstadt to regroup, and when Ferdinand tried to disengage the French, he ordered a battalion to hold the bridge crossing the sail and the two Saxon regiments to the right in order to extend the protection of his center. However, Lon's skirmishers, mostly made up of the 17 Légeré Regiment, were able to easily defeat the Saxons, many of whom were unfamiliar with this style of warfare, and they then turned back in complete disarray. Now, to Ferdinand's credit, he was able to restore order within their ranks, as he feared that if they kept moving back, he would lose communications with the Saxon commander, Friedrich Joseph von Bebelacqua, separating the main Prussian contingent from their Saxon support. Once Ferdinand felt that the Saxon lines were stabilized, he ordered a counterattack, and once he felt that the center was secured, he recommenced his orders for a withdrawal across the bridge and a move up to Rudolstadt. Nevertheless, the French kept pushing, and with their superior numbers, they had entered Saulfield by midday, limiting the escape routes that Ferdinand had to regroup. At around 1 p.m., Lon gave the order for the main assault, with three regiments ordered to move on the Saxon positions, likely now exhausted and all out of sorts from the previous two hours of chaos, while the French cavalry moved between Saltfield and the small town of Croston to the northwest, further cutting off the line of retreat and forcing the Prussian army back close to the river. But Ferdinand was confident in the Prussian cavalry, lauded across Europe as one of the finest in the world, and he ordered them to attack an exposed flank in the 21st Chalsoza Shabbat, but this wound up playing right into Lon's hands, as his 2nd Cavalry line soon came up and enveloped the Prussian cavalry. And while they fought valiantly, the French numbers were too much, and they retreated back through Saltfield in complete confusion, joining the rest of the troops. The French pursued them, cutting down many soldiers and forcing others to make a hasty escape attempt across the cell, with many of them drowning as a result. Prince Ferdinand himself tried to escape north, but doing so through an enveloping French army proved fatal, literally. He was met by Quartermaster Jean-Baptiste Guindet of the French 10th Hussars Regiment and, after being ordered to surrender and refusing to do so, was cut down. Prince Ferdinand was 33 years old. 
Now, despite some further resistance by General Mbevelakwa's Saxon troops, once they saw the route was on, they too began to disengage. Many of the troops were able to make it back to Rudolstadt and regroup with Hohenlohen's men, but their spirit was broken. 1,700 Prussians and Saxons were either wounded, captured, or killed against only 170 French casualties, and Prince Ferdinand's division was eliminated as a fighting force. Long was hailed as a hero for his battle strategy, and the French began to march northwards again, this time with their backs to Berlin and the Oder River, which, as Napoleon had wanted, cut off the supply lines for the Prussians. But even with this victory in hand, demoralizing as it was for the Prussians, Napoleon was still not sure of what their next movements would be, and he stayed up late that evening pondering on what their new intentions were. The French speed, though, was such that they were able to intercept additional supply trains at Gera, northeast on the right bank of the Seine, heading for Hohenlohen's army at Rundelstadt. When Hohenlohen got word of this, he began marching his men north via Jena to the northeast on the left bank, just south of Erfurt, where the main Prussian army under Brunswick was camped. When Napoleon got wind of this via the spies of Murat's cavalry on October 12th, he began a series of maneuvers that essentially moved his entire army westward towards the sail, pinning the entire Prussian force on the left bank. The following events over the next day and a half would have massive implications for what would be the dual battles of Jena and Auerstedt. Now, with Brunswick's force confirmed to be at Erfurt, Murat fanned out his cavalry to the north to prevent any potential escape for their force, while Davout, in the rear, seized the bridge crossing at Naumburg to the northeast. Now, at this point, the Prussians were pinned, exhausted, and, quite frankly, demoralized, and they began an orderly retreat to the northeast towards Magdeburg in order to reposition. But while all of this was happening, Lon and his 5th Corps moved into Jena on the 13th, where they encountered a few Prussian regiments. When Napoleon got word of this, he believed the force to be the main Prussian army, and even though he knew that they were in retreat, he knew that they posed a great risk to an isolated lawn at Jena. With this in mind, he thought that he could pull a little two-for-the-price-of-one action by assisting Lawn in knocking out the main Prussian force at Jena and potentially taking them out of the war right then and there. He quickly sent orders to concentrate all forces at Jena, and he instructed Marshals Davout and Bernadotte to come down from Nomburg and Dornberg respectively to assist. Davu, again, commanding the reserves in the rear, likely believed that he would be there to help finish off the scraps in the event of a French victory. Little did he know at that moment how instrumental he would be in turning a victory into a total rout. Because, you see, the problem for Napoleon was that the force that Lon was facing at Jena, still some 30,000 strong, by the way, wasn't the main Prussian force, but it was actually their rear guard under Hohenlohe. Brunswick's main force, as we know, was 52,000 strong, and they were moving north from Erfurt to reestablish a new position, something which Napoleon had not been privy to by his intelligence, and they were moving straight into the path of Marshal Davout and his Third Corps. Oblivious to this, obviously, after arriving at Jena on the 13th, Napoleon ordered Lon's corps to take the Landfragenberg plateau above the town and to set up their artillery there, although they were dangerously close to enemy fire. They would be joined there by the Imperial Guard and Marshal Agerho's 7th Corps, and Marshals Ney and Sewell were also nearby to close in for support. Napoleon sent orders throughout the night, and as dawn broke on the 14th of October, 1806, the stage was finally set for the dual battles of Jena and Auerstedt. The Battle of Jena began at 6.30 a.m., with the heavy fog settling in over the Sale Valley, eerily reminiscent of Auerstedt's ten and a half months earlier. Napoleon, 
who had had only about two hours of sleep that night, rode up to Long's Fifth Corps and addressed the men in no uncertain terms. Respect your enemy, or you will instill the confidence that they need to turn the tide of the battle. Long's Corps then moved westward from the plateau, their first task to be to clear out as many Prussian encampments in the nearby towns as possible in order to allow for the French reinforcements led by Marshal Soultonet to arrive by the hour. Sending his infantry forward, fierce fighting broke out in the nearby towns of Clausewitz, Cospeda, and Lutzerota, with Suchet's division being driven between the latter two due to the heavy fog, which reduced visibility to almost zero. Because of this, the French began to use up a large portion of their ammunition, essentially firing into open areas, hoping that they would hit the enemy. Marshal Ajaro and his 7th Corps moved south and then northwest to assist Lon's left flank, emerging onto the plateau to assist as Cospeda and Lutzerota endured fierce fighting. Soult's 4th Corps assisted on the right, climbing up steep hills and embankments in order to get into position. Now, despite being pushed back initially, with the fog beginning to clear, Lon ordered his second line to the front, being able to hold the attack from Lutzerota and pushing on northwest to the village of Veers and Heiligen. Napoleon then joined the French center, which was noticeably weak, and set up a 25-gun battery to assist in the assault on Veers and Heiligen. Now just short of 8 a.m., the village would fall to the French, only to be recaptured by the Prussians in a determined counterattack, though they suffered heavy losses at the hands of Napoleon's artillery. This back-and-forth struggle for the each minor village and town would be a theme throughout the morning. Now, while Napoleon and Lon dealt with Versa Heiligen, Soult and his 4th Corps moved through Clausewitz, capturing the city at around 9.30 a.m. But, like Versa Heiligen, a Prussian counterattack on their right stalled their advance onto the next town, Rodigan. But Soult was saved when his light cavalry came barreling up the hillside, stopping the Prussian thrust and routing their infantry, capturing two battle standards in the process. By 11 a.m., Soult's 4th Corps had stabilized the right of the French army, and they continued on west towards Nurkwitz. Now by the late morning, the fighting for Veers and Heiligen was fierce, and Marshal Ney and his 6th Corps arrived just in time. But Ney who noticed a gap in the French left as Ajaro's 7th Corps was still coming up from the Sal Ravine and was fighting smaller Prussian units to the south at Ischerstedt, decided to plug that gap on his own initiative, ignoring Napoleon's order to stay in the center to help stabilize the French line. Ney dove headlong into the fighting of Veers and Heiligen and was briefly surrounded and cut off by Prussian forces, only to be rescued at the last minute by the Imperial Guard cavalry. As Ajaro and Soult joined the main assault by securing the left and right flanks respectively, the French main attack line had finally stabilized. But critically for the Prussians, though, Hohenlohe was content with this. You see, he was expecting a reinforcement force of around 15,000 men at any moment under the command of General Rochelle, and he figured that if he too had a stable line, that the Prussians would have what they needed to order a decisive counterattack, driving the French back to Jena and, hopefully, across the sail. But Hohenlohe's decision was a disastrous one, to say the least. First off, and perhaps most important to the immediate fighting, the fact that he did not order an advance on any of the towns meant that his men were left wide open to light artillery fire and cavalry charges, suffering numerous critical casualties. Secondly, while the French did take a few hours to get their main attack line in position, while they did so, Lon, Ajaro, and Soult's forces bought enough time for Napoleon to pump in tens of thousands of more troops behind their line. 
What had started as a relatively large force of 25,000 French troops swelled to nearly 100,000 by midday. By the time Hohenlohe had realized the sheer numbers he faced, it was far too late. At 1 p.m., Napoleon made his move and ordered an all-out assault. It was also at this moment in which one of the more memorable, and also likely apocryphal, images of Napoleon's career was created. While riding past the Imperial Guard, which was to remain in reserve, an eager young soldier called out, En avant, or forward, causing Napoleon to stop his horse and demand who shouted the order. When the soldier presented himself, Napoleon harangued him in front of the entire unit, ordering him to never issue such orders again, lest he command the amount of battles Napoleon had. And for those wondering, yes, this is the cover art for this episode. But whether it's true or not, Napoleon got into position and ordered his men forward. What happened next can only be described as an utter rout. Now, initially, the Prussians were able to withstand the first wave of the French thrust, even showing incredible discipline as they moved slightly backward to hold their line. But after a while, the line slowly came apart, and wave after wave of French infantry and battalion columns eventually disintegrated the Prussian line, causing them to flee in total chaos. Murat was then ordered to bring his cavalry up and chase down the fleeing Prussians, cutting down scores of them as the Prussians tried to escape back through the hills and forests. Murat reportedly did not stop chasing them down until later that evening, when they reached Weimar further to the northwest. At this moment, Rochelle's reinforcements finally arrived, but it was far too late. Despite a valiant attempt to push back Lon's V Corps, they too were eventually cut off and outflanked, with French corsairs chasing them back. By 3 p.m., the Battle of Vienna was over, and the French had secured an overwhelming victory. And while the exact numbers are difficult to place, the Prussians lost around 10,000 killed, 15,000 prisoners, and 150 guns to the French. The French, meanwhile, had suffered around 6,000 casualties, but their goal was achieved and Hohenlohe's men began their brutal march back to the Prussian interior. It was a massive win for Napoleon, and one that he believed had eliminated the Prussian army from the war. It wouldn't be until later that day that he found out that it wasn't he who fought the main army, but in fact his finest marshal, Louis-Nicolas Davout, who routed a Prussian army nearly three times the size of the French. And that battle took place 12 miles to the north, at Auerstedt. Now backing up to earlier in the day, as the Battle of Jena got underway, Marshal Davout's Third Corps was heading south, believing that they would arrive at Jena just in time to help finish off the Prussian army and guarantee French victory. But Davout never made it to the battlefield, because his Third Corps, 26,000 strong with 50 guns, would meet the main Prussian army that Napoleon thought he was fighting, a 60,000-man force under Brunswick's command joined by King Frederick William himself, by the way, that was moving north to take up new positions and reassess their strategy for handling Napoleon. Now, Davout was to be joined by Marshal Bernadotte's First Corps, but he was nowhere to be seen, something which we'll get to a little later on, but let's just say his absence from both battles didn't exactly endear himself to Napoleon any more than he already was. Davout, on the other hand, well, he would earn laurels for a lifetime and solidify his nickname as the Iron Marshal. Now, most men when faced with over 2 to 1 odds in the fields of battle would likely panic and order a retreat, but Davout, as we're about to see, was not most men, and once he saw the approaching Prussian army, he remained calm and delivered his orders. He ordered General Etienne Goudon's division to form a defensive line around the village of Hassenhausen, and, forming squares, 
They were able to withstand heavy frontal assaults by the Prussian advance guard, led by General Gerhard von Blücher. Now, we're obviously going to be doing a much longer deep dive into Blücher later on in this series because I don't want to get too off topic today, but as you would guess, this is his debut appearance in our series, though it most certainly will not be his last. Anyway, Davout employed his two other infantry divisions to help reinforce the line around Hassenhausen, withstanding repeated Prussian attacks from Blücher and Brunswick. But the Prussians, in what was a repeat of them from the entire campaign, made little use of their superior manpower, and their strategy was abysmal, failing to even attempt a flanking maneuver on either side of Davout's line to encircle them, despite their superior manpower. Many of the orders that came through the high command were often confused and poorly coordinated, and the French took advantage of this at every opportunity. In one critical moment, the Duke of Brunswick was shot through the eyes around 10 a.m., and he died later that day, unable to issue any orders. With the Prussian command collapsing, more chaos began to flood the ranks. King Frederick William at that moment took personal command, yes, I too had a chuckle at that when I learned this, and ironically, believing that he was facing the main French army under Napoleon, kept many of his divisions uncommitted. As a result of this, Davout, who now saw an opportunity to take advantage of the Voya leadership, ordered a counterattack just after noon, and the route was on. An army nearly three times the size of his own, Davout had sent them panicking in just under six hours. It was a stunning and improbable, though costly, victory. Davout's Third Corps suffered around 6,000 casualties, about a quarter of his men. Though, given what they had to face, it's actually impressive that those numbers were only that high. The Prussians, meanwhile, suffered enormously. 15,000 casualties and over 100 guns were seized from their forces, and psychologically, they were devastated. King Frederick William likely did believe that he had fought against Napoleon, but even if that were the case, to have been routed so thoroughly by such a small force, that was about as embarrassing as it gets, in his presence no less. And still, the battles would play a major role in the Prussian campaign in the following years during the Napoleonic Wars, because they were scars that they neither wanted to forget nor forgive, only to avenge. Now, later that day, when Napoleon got word of Davout's stunning victory, and that it was actually he who faced the main Prussian army, he almost didn't believe it. Quote, Your marshal must be seeing double, he reportedly said, a reference to Davout's poor eyesight. Once it was indeed confirmed, though, Napoleon's praise for Davout and his Third Corps was unwavering. Quote, Tell the marshal that he, his generals, and his troops have gained everlasting claims on my gratitude. He would also later award Davout the title of Duke of Auerstedt for his indispensable role he played in driving the Prussians back from Jena and Auerstedt. Not even Lon, who had been so instrumental in maintaining the center at Jena, was feted with such praise. On the other hand, however, no man was harangued as much as Marshal Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte for his failure to appear on the battlefield at either location. Bernadotte's role or rather lack thereof, Egin and Auerstedt is controversial even to this day. Much the speculation of confusion on the orders he was given, the poor roads by which he had to travel, and his overall personal dislike of both Napoleon and Davout, something which was only exacerbated after the battles. Bernadotte was the only marshal to not receive written orders on the night of October 13th, and the next morning, Davout received word from Berthier that he could march with Bernadotte if they were in position together. When Davout relayed this to Bernadotte, Either the wording or the actual instructions made little sense, 
and Bernadotte decided to remain at Dürnberg instead of accompanying Davout on their march south. And even once Davout sent word to Bernadotte that he was, in fact, facing off against the main Prussian army, Bernadotte didn't believe him and moved down to Alpolda, which was intended to cut off the Prussian line of retreat by covering their rear. Now, this actually did work, as the Prussians moved far away from Jena once they saw Bernadotte's men approaching, but his overall inaction at a critical battle infuriated not only Napoleon, but also Davout, who never truly forgave the marshal, and the two became arch-rivals for the remainder of their time together in Napoleon's military command. Napoleon even wrote years later that he wanted a court-martial and shoot Bernadotte for his inaction, but ultimately decided against it. In the end, he sent a letter which severely reprimanded him, but after that, no further action was taken. Much of the damage had been done between them, though, and Bernadotte's personal disdain and likely jealousy of Napoleon were only furthered by this incident, and they likely helped to push him closer and closer to his ultimate treason of the man he once called emperor. So we're going to leave it here for today. But fear not, because next week's episode is going to be full of even more battles and even the capitulation of the Prussian capital of Berlin. Because for as devastating a duo of defeats as Jan and Auerstedt were, they didn't end the war quite yet, not as Napoleon wanted. King Frederick William still held on to the hope that the Russian army would come back and assist them, and that they could retake what they had lost in October. But Napoleon and his Grand Armée would not let up either. And next week, we're going to wrap up 1806 as the French continue their pursuit of the Prussians and begin their own economic warfare on Great Britain with the implementation of the Continental System. Lastly, before we close, I know during the supplemental episode I had mentioned I wanted to give my thoughts on Ridley Scott's Napoleon, which I did see a few days ago. And after watching the movie, I realized that just taking a few minutes to recap my thoughts would be insufficient. So I'll be making a small supplemental episode on that to give my thoughts on the movie and what I liked and disliked. And spoiler alert, there was a lot more dislike than like, but we'll get into that in due time. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you guys on the other side.